Evanston Bible Fellowship, great to be back with you, and a welcome to all the students who are returning. I think I saw two or three as well, maybe the same ones that Sam saw. Um, but welcome. You, if this is your first week with us, you are catching us at week number four in a four-week mini-series on the life and ministry of the prophet Elijah called Staying True in Troubled Times. So that's where we are this morning. 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I've titled it simply, Follow the Leader. In his last letter to his wife before he was executed, Patrice Lumumba wrote this. Neither brutal assaults, nor cruel mistreatment, nor torture have ever led me to beg for mercy, for I prefer to die with my, held head, my head held high, unshakable faith, and the greatest confidence in the destiny of my country, rather than live in slavery and contempt for the sacred principles. Do not weep for me, my companion. I know that my country, now suffering so much, will be able to defend its independence and its freedom. Patrice Lumumba was the first prime minister of the Democratic Republic of Congo, and he was instrumental in helping it attain its independence from the tyrannical rule of the Belgians not quite 60 years ago. With such courage and conviction facing his execution, uh, it's not hard to see why so many were quick to follow. We can think of many other historical uh, significant figures like Martin Luther King, George Washington, Nelson Mandela. You can name a dozen more at least, I'm sure. Now, you know, like I do, that people are messy and maybe especially leaders. They have faults, they have problems, they have chinks in their armor. But these men, and others like them, have all made a significant impact in history. They were able to plant seeds in the garden of time that would only grow after their deaths. They were able to start a great work that people after them would pick up and continue. And that's where our text really is today. At the end of Elijah's life, we are seeing that he is a man worth following and that there is a work worth continuing. Verses 1 through 8, a man worth following, 9 through 12, a work worth continuing. And I might even put it this way, just to tie those two together, that somebody who is worth following will leave a work worth continuing. The questions for us this morning then will be, are you following the leader? And are you continuing his work? Take a look at verses 1 through 8. Let's see a man worth following. It opens with a bit of surprise, doesn't it? Out of nowhere, we find that Elijah's life and ministry are coming to a close. It's a bit surprising because just in the previous chapter, Elijah is at the top of his game. He is able to call down fire on three hit squads of 50 soldiers coming to take him out. He's able to pronounce the judgment of God on an unfaithful king. God is, God's favor is on him and his power is with him. So it's kind of shocking when we're bluntly told that Elijah's life 
is at its end. We're looking at his last days. But we're also told that his end is going to be unusual. It doesn't say that Elijah is going to die. Rather, the Lord is going to take him up into heaven in a windstorm. He's going to receive his servant and bring him home. Now, a few weeks ago, we had a really easy example of where the Bible is not hard to understand. Uh, This is, I think, another example. It's maybe a little bit less humorous than the one we talked about with dogs licking up your blood. But the idea here is that with Elijah's departure to heaven, contrast that with how everybody else in the book of First and Second Kings have, have gone off the scene. Uh, like we said, Ahab's blood was licked up by dogs. Uh, immediately before this, uh, Ahab's son, King Ahaziah, had a fall, got sick, received the judgment of God because he refused to follow the Lord. The contrast is really easy to see. Those who rebel against God will die under his judgment, while his faithful servant is received with his pleasure. He does not die. There's no mention of death for Elijah in the whole passage. That's striking. You don't know anybody who has not or will not at some point die. But here is a man who will not die. He will go straight into heaven. But he receives this commendation at the end of his life that was marked by both faithful service but consistent rejection. Elijah was a man that stayed true even when all around him had forsaken his God and opposed his ministry. God approves of Elijah's life and ministry and that is demonstrated by how he is received into heaven in an almost entirely unique fashion. But I think that God's approval then is pointing out to us, in case you didn't already know, that Elijah is a man worth following. And I think this is a particularly helpful instruction for the modern evangelical church as we think about how we might evaluate our leaders in ministry, particularly for EBF as we're considering how and who will be the next pastor to lead the congregation. If you want a servant of the word that is approved by God, then it might actually serve us well to consider a few of the marks of Elijah's ministry. Let's think back just over the few chapters we've looked at in the last three weeks. Right from the beginning in 1 Kings 17, we find that Elijah is not afraid to oppose those who are unfaithful to God. In chapter 18, we saw that his focus is on calling people back to God and to only God, to God alone. In 19, we saw in his prayers before the Lord that he was in anguish over the rebellion of the people, over their sin. In chapter 21, he denounced injustice and evil. But in each of them, he is marked as one who has the true word of God in his mouth. But in spite of this, In spite of marks that many of us in here would say, yes, those are what we want our pastor to be like, his ministry was not marked by revival, but by rejection. He didn't have what we might call sustained success in ministry, certainly not by any church growth metrics. 
chapter 19, when he was praying before God over the sin of his people, he thought that he was all alone. So so sparse were his followers and the followers of Yahweh. I think a lot of pastoral search committees would probably have turned away Elijah's application right there. He didn't have a lot of fruit in his ministry. His congregation was too small. He didn't have enough followers on social media, and he did not dress hip enough. Elijah went into the no pile, but thank you for submitting. Maybe he wasn't sensitive enough to those who don't like to hear about sin, but he was jealous for God. And God receives him with a special honor. And if this is the kind of minister that God is approving and applauding, isn't that the kind of ministers we ought to be listening to or hiring, submitting to, following? If we take to heart God's approval of Elijah, then that will shape the criteria we use for evaluating and calling ministers of the gospel. Elijah was a man approved by God, and as such, he exemplifies what it means to be a man and a minister worth following. But Elisha knew that about Elijah for a long time. Since the very first day they met, actually, Elijah came by and when he met him, called him into the prophetic ministry and to follow him. He gave up his livelihood, left his family, and walked with Elijah following God. And now in the last days of Elijah's life, Elisha's still with him. He won't leave him, in fact. You may have heard that a few times in the reading. In verses 2, 3, and 4, Elijah gives Elisha the opportunity to move on. He says, I'm going here. Stay here. You don't need to come with me. But Elisha is adamant that he will not leave his mentor, his friend, or what he calls him his father in verse 12. Each time Elisha promises, and even the other prophets know that God, that God is about to take Elijah away, and they cannot dissuade. He basically tells them to just shut up about it. Let it go. I know, but I'm not leaving him. I won't leave him. Elijah was a man worth following, and Elisha remains by his side to the very end. Now, wouldn't you like a friend like that? Imagine if our churches were characterized by this kind of relationship. Elisha stays with his mentor until his last day, especially in light of the fact that he turned down the opportunity for quicker promotion. That's what these other prophets were saying. Hey, you can stay here and take up as the new leader of the prophets. But his relationship to Elijah was so important that it paled in comparison. It shows a level of respect and honor for his father in the faith that would make putting himself forward look like a disgrace. Be shameful. The church is to be full of people that prize relationships over promotion. We need to value seniors over ourselves. We need to be with those at the end of their days rather than focusing on whatever our new beginning might be. Friends, the church is uniquely 
and I mean uniquely for lots of reasons we can talk about, uniquely qualified to show this kind of love to people. We live in a day where we talk about an epidemic of loneliness. And if that's the case, then who wouldn't want a friendship like this? Wouldn't you rather be closer to your neighbor than to Alexa? Or have a better conversation with your spouse than with Siri? Elisha models love in relationship and unwilling to depart. It's what friendship looks like, family. And the church in its best form is made up of just these kind of friendships where others come first and love is lived. Elijah was a man worth following, and Elisha followed him in friendship. Well, Elijah's farewell tour then consists of stops at Bethel, Jericho, and it ends with them crossing the Jordan River, which God miraculously parts, so they pass through on dry ground. This is where they'll have their final conversation. And the conversation will be about a work that's worth continuing. Turn to verses 9 through 12. We'll see the work worth continuing. Having crossed the Jordan, Elijah recognizes it's time to say goodbye. They've moved from their first day to their last. And he reciprocates Elisha's love and kindness. Before he goes, he offers to help him in whatever way he might be able to. He says, ask what I can do for you before I go. Elisha doesn't have to wait, does he? (laughs) If somebody asked you right before they were about to pass away, like, what can I do for you? That's like a a big request. I might like say, well, can you give me a day to think about it? He didn't have a day to think about it, but he knew. He knew. He wanted to be Elijah's successor. He wanted to be the one to carry on Elijah's ministry. That's the meaning of this phrase that we see here in verse 9. Elisha asks that a double portion of his spirit be on him. This is inheritance language. Uh, When a father died, the inheritance would be divided into equal portions according to the number of children. The firstborn son would get twice as many portions as all of the other children combined. So, if you had nine children, the oldest son would get six portions, six shares, as it were, and the other eight children would share the remaining three. We get about two-thirds. That sounds grossly unfair, doesn't it? Unless you're like the oldest son in your family, then you're okay with it. But it didn't come without obligation or responsibility. The oldest son as heir, was to take up the work of the father as the head of the family. That is, the additional inheritance was given to him, not so that he could spend it on his personal enjoyment, but because he was now responsible to provide for the health and welfare of the entire family or clan. Getting a double portion meant being both designated as the heir or successor and receiving the required resources needed to fulfill such a daunting role. This is what Elisha is asking for. And it was set in motion back in 1 Kings 19, where he was commissioned by God, called by Elijah to prophetic work. 
Now, having followed Elijah to the end, he knows that proclaiming God's word to God's wayward people is a worth work continuing. And he asks Elijah if he can be the one to carry it on. He's asking to be the successor, but not just for status. Verses 1 to 8 showed us that Elisha is not about premature personal promotion. He's eager for the responsibility of an heir and the work of a successor. He wants to care for the spiritual health and welfare of the family of God, even in spite of the fact that in verse 10, Elijah warns him of the difficult thing that he is asking for. You don't know what you're getting yourself into, Elisha. Haven't you been paying attention to my life? Elijah tells him that it will be up to God if he will receive this role as successor and heir of the prophetic order. If God allows him to see Elijah as he departs, that will be his sign that the ministry is his to continue. But the conversation was cut off. A divine military escort sweeps through. Fiery horses and chariots were visible to Elisha before Elijah goes up into heaven in a whirlwind to God. Elijah does not die like the evil kings of Israel who had forsaken God. He was received into God's presence with glory. And seeing Elijah go would be a lasting encouragement for Elisha as he ministered in Israel's dark days. He would always be reminded of the divine approval and reward given to Elijah at the end of a life well spent. It would encourage him to give his life in similar service and faithfulness because he had a hope worth waiting for. Similarly, as the Apostle Paul's life drew near to the end, sitting in a Roman prison, he wrote his successor in the ministry, a young pastor named Timothy. And in 2 Timothy 4.8, he speaks of his own coming reward. Having finished the race and kept the faith, a crown was laid up for him that Jesus will give him on that great day. He had a hope worth waiting for. And friends, this is our encouragement. This glorious reception into God's presence is not only for the greats, like Elijah or Paul. In other words, I don't have a chance. Probably you don't either. But this kind of reception, Paul says this, it's available for all who have loved Jesus' appearing. This reward, this crown of righteousness on that great day is given to all who have loved his appearing, which means it's available for anybody sitting in this room this morning. Now, you're not going to be taken up in fiery chariots and a whirlwind into heaven, most likely that's not going to happen for you. But for everyone here who has attached themselves to Jesus, there's a great reception waiting for you. An approval, a reward at the end of your days, no matter how hard they might be. So take heart. Finish the race fight the good fight of faith. Stay true to the end and finish the race with your eye on the prize like Paul, like Elijah, because we have hope that's worth waiting for. 
But then all of a sudden it was quiet again. Elisha's father and the faith had been taken up and he is gone. Now, Elisha had seen Elijah go, which means that God called him to take up the work. And he's received the double portion. It's time to get busy. He's tasked with bringing God's word to a faithless people. He's calling God's people back to God. He's responsible for the spiritual health and welfare of the people. And the rest of chapter 2 actually follow how Elisha picks up where Elijah left off. He enters the land by crossing the Jordan in miraculous fashion, just like Elijah, and he brings the blessings and judgments of God's kingdom. Now, some of you here who have been around church for a while, who know the Bible well, may see some similarities with another Bible story, maybe even something from Sunday school. The succession resembles remarkably the transition of leadership from Moses to Joshua when he led the people across the Jordan and in to take possession of the land. Moses, like Elijah, was a man worth following. And Joshua, like Elisha, had a work worth continuing. But there's a different succession story that I find just as compelling. I'm sure you know this one as well. It's Jesus' succession story. You know, in the Bible, there are only three people who get taken up into heaven without dying. First, there's a guy named Enoch in Genesis 5. We don't know a whole lot more about him, just that he walked with God, and then he was gone. Second is our man Elijah, who we're looking at this morning in 2 Kings 2. And the final one is Jesus in Acts chapter 1. I'd encourage you to turn there, if you can find it quickly, Acts chapter 1. And in Acts 1, we're going to see kind of a culminating point of our story in 2 Kings 2. Acts 1, in part, makes the argument that Jesus is a man worth following and that we have a work worth continuing. Luke, as an author, is portraying Jesus in many ways as a greater fulfillment of Elijah. And he does so by using the same kind of language for Jesus' ascension as the writer in 2 Kings did to describe Elijah's departure. Take a look at 1-2. Until that day when he was taken up. The angels again speak in 1-11 as Jesus being taken up into heaven. And Peter's speech in 1-22 also describes Jesus as being taken up. Luke, back in his gospel, the prequel to the book of Acts, writes at 9.51 that Jesus turned to go to Jerusalem. Why? Because it was almost his time to be taken up. Jesus' ascension is described with Elijah-like language. And why not? After all, Jesus is a faithful servant of God, receiving God's approval. The word was true in his mouth. Like Elijah, he called people to return to God, and he worked to bring God's kingdom. He condemned evil. Yet his life and ministry were largely met with opposition and rejection. It ended with his death. But even so, he was like Elijah in that his death was the ultimate means for providing the spiritual health and welfare of all who would follow him. That is, the forgiveness of sins. He didn't put himself first, but in love he served and gave his life as a ransom for all who would attach themselves to him in faith. 
Jesus excels Elijah in every aspect of holiness and life and ministry. How much more then might he be a man worth following? Like Elijah, God approved of Jesus' life and ministry. He raised him from the dead, brought him out from the tomb. And Jesus was then taken up into heaven in ascension, where he now reigns as the ruler of all kings and kingdoms. He's a man worth following, if there ever was one. But before he departed, he made known his succession plans. He chose a successor. And he left him with a work, left them with a work worth continuing. Look at Acts 1.8. Jesus promised his followers what? That they would receive his spirit. And what are they to do with that spirit? This is the necessary resource, the power with which they can continue the work that they're going to go about continuing Jesus' ministry of proclaiming the kingdom of God. That is the work left to his successors, that is, to us. We are his disciples, the one that he has tasked with working with him and for him by the power of his spirit. We're to testify as witnesses concerning this man who is worth following, Jesus the crucified, Jesus the risen, Jesus the ascended, and we will work until he comes again. But what about you? If you're here continuing, exploring Christianity or visiting on a Sunday, I'd encourage you to get to know Jesus. Connect with a pastor or a friend that maybe you came with and read the Gospels to find out about this man. Is he a man worth following, worth committing your life to that you would not leave until the very end of your own days? For those of you here who are already Christians, Are you busy in his work? Being a Christian is not merely about receiving a status. Like an heir, it comes with the obligation of working for the welfare of God's people and the expansion of his kingdom. Are you continuing the work? And this is for everyone here. When I talk about work, I don't mean your occupation. I mean your vocation. I'm not talking about how you earn money. I'm talking about how you spend your life. What are you giving yourself to? What's the driving purpose around which everything else revolves? What really gets your energy, your excitement? Is it a job? Is it riches that fly away? For students, is your life consumed by a diploma that's going to hang on your wall and gather dust for years? When you think about the brevity of our lives and our impending deaths, these pursuits, rightly considered, will seem a bit hollow. Do they really deserve the extremities of your tension? Or, alternatively, are you willing to commit yourself to a work that's worth continuing? To something that will be here long after you and I are gone? To something that's not about you? Would you commit to witnessing to Christ by leveraging your money and status to fuel gospel mission? And I I don't just mean checking a box or giving what you should. 
I'm talking about energetic and enthusiastic participation in mission and relief work and gospel advancement in Evanston, Chicago, and beyond? Would you commit to expanding the kingdom by discipling your children and sharing the gospel with your neighbor? Would you commit to advancing the gospel by engaging your minds and your abilities to edify the church and enrich the world? To think deeply about Bible and theology in a way that addresses the cultural moments of today. To rethink uh, relief work and efforts around the world under the name of Jesus Christ. These are the kind of things around which our jobs, our wealth, our education ought to revolve and not the reverse. This is what it looks like to give ourselves to a work worth continuing. And I pray that the scripture would open our eyes to the vistas of opportunity for real life and real work following Jesus. Jesus is man worth following, and we have a work worth continuing. He's given us a hope worth waiting for and a work to do while we wait. Join me in prayer. Our God in heaven, we pray now by your spirit that you would give us eyes to see Jesus and that we would follow him. That we would have hearts that love one another, that serve one another, and care for one another in friendship and service. And God, give us hands that are eager to work with your spirit for the proclamation of your gospel in our homes, on our campuses, and throughout the world. Would you do it for our good and your glory? And it's in the name of your son we pray. Amen.